0: Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Margarita Ochoa and Dr. Sarah Vicuña-Gingrich titled Cacicas, the Indigenous Women Leaders of Spanish America, 1492 to 1825, published by University of Oklahoma Press, Dr. Ochoa is an associate professor of history at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles and is co-editor of the book, City Indians in Spain's American Empire. Dr. Vacuna Gingrich is an associate professor of Spanish at Texas Tech University. Her current book project is Daughters of the Inca Conquest, Inca Women Under Spanish Rule. Margarita and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us Jane. I was wondering if you could tell us how this book came about. Well,
2: (laughs) I can start if uh, if possible. So this book is the realization of the ubiquitousness of the women referred to as cacicas in the Spanish-American colonial archive and also of their very different experiences in the colonial world. Um, just going back chronologically in 2016, Margarita, another contributor and myself were presenting our individual works at the Ethnohistory Conference. Mm-hmm. And we were put together into a panel that runs so smoothly with the discussions and the comments mm-hmm. that um, at the end, Margarita and I decided to discuss further this project. And that's how the book evolved. When we sent the call for papers to, uh, mm-hmm. to request um, submissions, we were pleasantly surprised at the number of proposals we received from scholars in the US, Europe, and Latin America. And of all the many uh, topics they could uh, discuss in studying colonial casica. So making the final cut to the nine chapters of the volume was a very difficult task, but I think that's a good problem to have.
1: Yes, yes. Just as Sarah said, I mean, this project came about organically. Um, It was um, it was just such a interesting moment of realization for Sarah and I at that ethno-history conference that the two of us just happened to be placed on a panel together and we were both talking about what eventually became our uh, contributions in this edited volume. And the commentator on that panel is also a contributor, Brad Benton, um, who wrote one of the the first chapters here in this volume and um, yeah. This is This has been really a labor of love ever since. Uh, wow, really I'm glad you guys went
0: to that conference. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, it's so funny. I often think about how we really have not been attending the conferences that we normally would over the last two years because of COVID and and shutdowns and and the the inability to get together as colleagues and how much we miss each other and uh, that collegiality and and all the uh, the. Intellectual sparks that happen when we're all together in a in a conference, and what you always take something away from a conference. And you guys certainly made the most of that one for sure. That's really uh, that's great. I was wondering when I was reading how you guys um, met, if you had met in school or if you had met as uh, as colleagues. So, can you define the word casicas for us, and 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 why did you choose it for the title? You know, um,
1: I'll I'll just jump in here, Sarah Asada. Um, So in terms of defining the term, right, in its most broad sense, as the title explains, um, the Cacica means Indigenous Woman Leader. Uh, But of course, as as we hope comes through in the edited volume, Cacicas were much more than leaders, much less sometimes. Um, In fact, their statuses, their wealth, their uh, activities varied uh, from one ethnic group to another, from one region to another in colonial uh, Latin America, and definitely changed significantly from the 16th century through the end of the colonial period. on another uh, related note, cacique, uh, that term it itself, um, as we try to make clear at the beginning of the edited volume was a linguistic invention by the Spanish who um, in their, you know, early sort of uh, explorations, if you will, and encounters in the Caribbean uh, picked up this term of cacique uh, from the Arawak-speaking peoples of the Caribbean. And then they uh, they gendered it and um, made, you know, conv- converting right this this term for a male indigenous leader or a male chief to uh, to some you know to some Female version um, of the term that was then applied to the relatives of caciques. The term cacique itself was also applied to indigenous leaders across the Americas by the Spanish, right? Even though we know, right, there were hundreds of indigenous languages spoken across the Americas, right? The Nawas referred to their leaders as tlatoani or grand leaders as the way tlatoani for the Spanish. Um, maybe they were tlatoani, but they were they were cacique, homogenized right into this into this category.
2: Yes and, and I also want to add that the reason why we picked the term as the title of the book um, it's it's essentially because the title um, sums up indigenous women that reinvented themselves under colonial rule using a term that was imposed to them but given the term different meanings and very individual meanings so we think that the title uh, really sums up this whole concept.
0: Wow, that's great. So, you know, so we really need this book, right? Since <laughs> stories have largely been ignored <laughs> in history. So, how does this book offer readers a new view of the history of Spanish America?
2: Well, for the most part, um, I think the studies of Casicas, um in the past um, prior to our collection have been um, regional um, and have been also. Uh, Limited themselves to one time period. What we wanted to do with this collection is provide a panoramic vision of casicas, not only um, in, in different from one region to the next, but also chronologically more encompassing. And what we see with this um, um, organization is that uh, we can we can examine, and the readers can also examine. The moments in which cacicas rise and fall, in the very different um, uh, stages of, of colonial dominance. Definitely,
1: you know, if, if I could uh, chime in here as well, um, in terms of the broader history of Spanish America, you know, um, you know, we. You know, we, we also thought about how this book, right, this focused on these casicas, right, on this historical figure that is at times a, a pitiful figure, at other times, right, someone who is very... Who's fascinating and actually wields authority, right? Creates authority for themselves in the early period, or like Teresa Choquehuanca, right? Saras Casica, if you will, who 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 really sort of just uh, you know commands quite a bit of authority and is and is taking up, right, um, a fight um against those who are seeking independence, for example. But uh, we'll talk more about that later. Um uh, in terms of conquest, for example, and broader history, um, I would you know we for those of us who study the colonial period and research this period, we know that um, that the conquest really was carried about carried out um, uh, as a result of indigenous right Spanish alliances, uh, but also once right these Spanish tried to implement their system of rule, their system of rule was highly dependent on indigenous leaders. Predominantly male indigenous leaders, at least from the Spanish perspective, who would continue uh, to rule their indigenous communities, uh, you know, as they had more or less prior to European arrival, and on behalf, right, of the new Spanish overlords. So, in essence, the Spanish were ruling by proxy. But what we, but what we hope Casicas adds to this story is that um, here are these women who are also helping to continue to rule these indigenous communities, complementary with or parallel with the cacique, who was again recognized by Spanish authority, who has been recognized heavily in terms of studies on on Spanish native relations. but the cacica was also there to ensure that indigenous communities, uh, you know, what remained of them, remained fairly intact, continued to function. That tribute collections were organized. That disputes at the local level, especially uh, family disputes, domestic disputes, uh, in essence, local issues, were also taken care of. So, uh, so yes, the Spanish ruled by proxy, thanks to caciques, but also in a way, as a, thanks to caciques. The flip side of that. Casicas also were pivotal. Uh, in some cases, in challenging that authority and ensuring that their indigenous communities, right, that their rights uh, uh, were were upheld, especially in uh, legal right uh, tribunals, that um, that excessive demands for tribute, right, were not off, you know, uh, imposed on certain communities. They tried where they could, right. Uh, eventually, the Spanish caught their way, but but in essence, not only did they help the Spanish system in terms of of, you know, developing colonial society, but they also challenged that system um, as individuals, but also as representatives of their community. So we hope it really, you know, helps um, add nuance to our understanding of conquest and the development of colonial society.
0: Oh, that's so interesting because you know, I think sometimes when you look at a book that is women's history, you think, well, I'm going to learn about the women. But this is more than that because you're going to learn about the women, but you're also going to get a deeper, more profound understanding of Spanish rule in colonial America as well, mm-hmm. and that through these stories you're going to gain that um, that depth in this mm-hmm. in and uh, in the story. That's that's so helpful, you know, uh, for. In particular, I think for people who are trying to teach this and trying to get that nuance across to students, I yeah. think it's a, it's really great. So, can you talk about the available sources? Are, you know, are there enough sources? Uh, you know, I have to say that I think that each of these essays, and for for those who are listening and don't uh, understand the structure of the book, that this is nine a collection of nine chapters, nine essays by different scholars, and. It is beautifully and well footnoted. So the sources are right there and are uh, very helpful for scholars and teachers who want to uh, go further and look up uh, the source material. So can you talk a little bit about the available sources?
2: Yeah, there's a there's a variety of sources um, used by each author. But I want to say, um, uh, be- because we we have uh, tried to include caciques that were located in different regions of colonial um, cities and uh, maybe more peripheral areas, what we usually find is that obviously the, the, the sources for more urban areas, for example, are much more readily available, testaments, um, um in any type of legal suits notarial records um and and uh in the case of uh elite cacicas uh coming from um classical lineages even uh pre-conquest lineages are rich sources because they were the ones that could afford Um, uh, uh, the court, the courtroom. So I think uh, it really depends on the region that you want to study and also on the type of classical families or or lineages that you um, want to explore. But one of the things that many of the authors that are part of this collection um, told us is that the reason why they decided to write about their their contributions on cacicas, even if they did not specialize in cacicas themselves, is because when they were at the archive, they always found cacicas. floating in the archive, (laughs) you can always find a cacica, no matter what other subject you may be studying, there's always a cacica there.
0: That's great. And so I just wanted to read um, a quote from Page 273 in the conclusion of of the volume, quote, The women portrayed in this book are agents of history. Through intersectional readings of lawsuits, civil and criminal, legal codes, published and unpublished chronicles, testaments and other notarial and military records, the authors of this volume reveal the tensions that occurred between institutional structures and everyday negotiations of power. Even when colonial institutions gradually diminished Cacica's privileges, these women kept engaging with them in creative ways in order to maintain a certain degree of authority. In some cases, the power they acquired was symbolic, in other cases, quite tangible. And so I was thinking about that quote, and I was thinking how the um the source material really helps uh the availability of the source material and its and its inclusion and interpretation uh so helpful in fleshing out these stories and, and really making these caciques come to life on the page.
1: Oh yes. I'm- I mean, as Sarah was saying, right, um, all of these chapters are making use of a variety of archival sources, in some cases, archaeological sources, like in the case of uh, Chantal Kailovet's chapter. Um, but really, you know, when we walk into an archive um, and walk, you know, in our, in our opening up volumes of documents on the colonial world, it we do come across these casicas, which is why... Um, you know there are these many anecdotes about caciques and their activities, right? Whether it's a book on, uh, you know, on the Michtec region of Mexico or some, uh, you know, on the Andean region of South America, um, there's a variety of these uh, of these stories out there embedded in much larger, richer histories. Um, but but what we what we were able to accomplish in this edited volume, and again, right, only a few chapters of the many who uh, who reached out to us, who wanted to be a part of this project, right? Um, what we were able to accomplish is, is to tell the history, uh, the varied and complex histories of these casicas in the 16th century in places like Mexico, um, in places like uh, the Southern Cone of South America, um, using everything, from, uh, everything available to us from litigation sources, from a civil courts, ecclesiastical courts, Criminal courts um, Looking into the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, using last tools and testaments, um, letters, uh, at, doing examinations, right, uh, analysis of legal code as well, right, just to understand how laws, uh, what laws were at play in the early colonial period, and what laws uh, were then written and were also at play in the later colonial era. Um, so we're really talking about, um, you know, a you know a collection here, an edited volume of chapters that do make use of an array of archival sources and some archaeological sources in the hopes that we might encourage others to, to really con- reconsider uh, the casica right, in all of her <laughs> complexities and, in, in, you know, diverse ways of being um, across uh, Spanish America. Consider this, right, for further research. So we really do consider this, right, a drop in the larger uh, bucket of uh, casica history and indigenous history, race history, women's history for colonial Latin America.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great. So. The title of the book is Cacicas, the Indigenous Women Leaders of Spanish America. So in what ways were Indigenous women leaders? Can you talk a little bit about the ways that they served as leaders? Sure. sure. Never <laughs> um, wants to start, it's
1: good. Sarah, did you want to start? I feel like I've been talking no, go ahead. quite a bit. OK, so I'll, I'll just time it a little bit here. Um, So as we already said, though this this title was really um, was also was a marketing ploy, right? We want to just you know put the term out there, casicas and give you the most the most general definition of the term, right? Indigenous leaders. Um, as the volume makes clear, not all of them were Indigenous leaders. Um, in fact, um, when we take a look at, right, uh, Catherine Commissart's chapter, my God, um, uh, that poor woman uh, made use of the legal system over and over and over, right? Really underscoring how she too, right, is an agent of history, how she was quite familiar with her, uh, with her abilities given her status as cacica, but also familiar with the legal system in her attempt to prolong the inevitable, which was she was gonna get kicked out of her home, uh, a home she once shared with uh, with a living, right, with her now deceased um, cacique husband. But how did they function as leaders? Um, I could I could talk a bit about my chapter. Um, we my chapter is focused on casicas in 18th century Mexico City. Um, I, I deal predominantly with litigation a variety uh, a variety of litigation from a different um, courts in the city in 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 Mexico City right the heart of Spanish rule in in one of the most important right American kingdoms. Uh, I might be being biased here, Sarah. <laughs> most important American kingdoms, right, yeah, within the Spanish Empire, New Spain, um, where the representatives of all, right, um, systems of Spanish systems of rule are located right here in Mexico City, where there is also a very, um, very viable, very very uh, significant indigenous population, right, even by this third century of Spanish rule, right, they are there, the indigenous are there, they are ruling, um, there are indigenous male leaders, right, who serve on their own indigenous cabildo, or sort of a parallel, uh, an Indian, if you will, city council parallel to the Spanish system of rule. Um, Women, as we mentioned earlier, indigenous women, all women, could not hold officially hold right um elected office but what we find the is doing right even in this sort of late colonial period where you know they've been stripped really of most of their wealth um they don't really have a lot of um Political official political sway, we find that these caciques are still ruling their communities um, as they had right co ruling if you will as they had a couple of centuries earlier um, in the early colonial period. Uh, they are helping specifically with um, with resolving issues, resolving complaints, resolving fights, resolving whatever might be taking place at the local level. In the specific case that I look at, where um, a cacica. Uh, was stabbed by her son-in-law because she came into the house when her, uh, her daughter and her son-in-law were having a, a, you know, a, a physical right altercation, uh, something that was not new to her. He, you know, her daughter was married to an abusive, a violent, um, physically abusive man, um, a Spanish man, if I remember correctly. um, and so she had she had attempted to right, bring peace to resolve this situation multiple times, as is evident from witness testimony. She had also done that in other cases, which also comes through from witness testimony. Um, but this, this time around, right. Uh, the husband was so, so drunk, so angry, whatever the case, he stabbed her. And, um, you know, and all the while, right. When, when we first read cases like this at face value, we think, well, you know, this is a woman, uh, you know, taking care of women's issues. Um, this is the mom, right. This is why she's involved. But then when we, when we read this, uh, alongside a couple hundred other cases where, uh, either casicas are, you know, the active litigant in, um, in, the case file, or they are mentioned by witness testimony, right? As you know, as having sort of acted in trying to resolve an issue, what we what we find are uh, certain patterns. What we find is that these casicas, uh, despite Caciques. And in the case of, uh, you know, um, uh, the casica of my chapter, despite her husband, who's, who has authority, uh, who is very much right in her home and is well aware of this violent situation happening, uh, as are many members of the community, you know, uh, late at night, he doesn't move to act, right? He understands. And this is what comes through, right? This is part of the pattern. It is understood that this is her realm this is her realm of authority. She takes care of, she responds to matters of, uh, you know, affecting the domestic sphere, if you will. I hate using such an
0: Whole
1: term here um, matters affecting marriage and family i should the say. the private right? home yeah the the private not so private right quite public actually oh, yeah. quite fluid here <laughs> yeah um, but she, but she takes care of these right and and we might you know we have a tendency to maybe uh, belittle to to view these issues as not so historically significant right it's the domestic realm but the reality is is that you need authority figures, right? Those who are invested in local social, political authority and local, right, leadership roles, to actually resolve these issues so that they don't escalate. So that the uh, the other, uh, you know, leaders like the caciques, right, the male counterparts, can also do their job, right, and um, deal with tribute collection, for example, and uh, and communicate with Spanish authorities. So, um, so here, right, uh, these are. This is an example of how these cacicas function as local indigenous community leaders invested, right, with some sort of a political authority, at least social uh, uh, political authority um, in communities, even by the late Colonga period.
2: Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. great. So Sarah, do you want to answer the question too about how they... Well, yeah, I can, I can just add a, a few, maybe a few um, aspects because I think we, we need to uh, address on how we... Perceive uh, leadership as as a concept, right? Sure. And uh, and and as Margarita was well explaining, it is not necessarily um, that uh, visible uh, authority that 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 Spanish would would grant um, a casica per se, but uh, uh, we see other examples of leadership um, in the mm-hmm. complex alliances that uh, casical families. Uh, made with each other in the colonial period. And just to give you a few examples on the South American portion of the book, uh, we can um, see how some of this women that were referred to as cacicas, uh litigated successfully for cacicasbo titles. Um, in the case of Karen Graber's chapter, for example, uh, she talks about a woman that emerges yeah. as a cacica due to the convergence of indigenous ethnohistoric narratives. Like some of these narratives could be true or could not be true, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. there were narratives that they used to justify their access to a cacicasco. Um, but they also used um, Spanish conventions like the Mayorazgo, for example. Um, and, uh, and the, and the litigant parties we see in this chapter have used both in, uh, in, their, in their quest for uh, the Casica, casical office. Um, another example of, of this portion of the book could also be the chapter by Liliana Perez and Renzo Norris um, that attests that those women that used the title or were referred to as casicas um, understood maybe as principal or lordly ladies, um, were sometimes um, not necessarily reflect uh, powerful, influential financial status, but they did deploy... Um, a strategy just for being named casicas, they could afford the, cha- the legal channels to obtain justice. And uh, just because of that, they work side by side with uh, Spanish uh, legal representatives. So they were using that uh, aspect of uh, the leadership that was. Uh, tied to the title of cacicas to access and to um, be part of that system. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh yeah, so let's talk a little bit about politics then, right? So, you know, again, it kind of go, it kind of goes back to Sada's point about how do we define leadership, and this also, I guess, requires a little bit of definition about what do we mean by how women. In, are involved in politics and how they influence politics. So, mm-hmm. how do you see that? How do you see the way that the casicas are influential in the political realm? Okay,
2: um, if, if I can start, uh, and then and then I'll let you add more, Margarita. But I just I think this this gives us a chance to to talk a little bit of little bit about the framework too that we use and the, the theoretical framework that we use for the book, because um, many of the casicas. Um, influence uh, in politics was rooted in their lineages and their kinships because some of them came from a long line of of uh, caciques and they could, they had the documentation to prove that. But uh, but at the end of what we see with uh, all the cases in the book is that um, the political influence of the caciques emerges with their individual actions with their subjective actions. Um, And it is precisely because of the subjective actions um, that we subscribe to the idea proposed by Michel Rolf Trouillot in his book, uh, Silence in the Past. Um, And and because of that, we also exchange the term agency for subjectivity Mm -hmm. because it is the individuality of the subjects that makes them aware of their own voices and through that consciousness, they can choose to participate of an oppressive system or confront it. So that's what we see um, in the case of many of the caciques of this book, that they are able to act as individuals, as historical subjects, and they're not all the time confronting colonial structures but rather acting as individuals with a purpose. So, and I think um, here I could briefly maybe talk about the cacica that I wrote um, about in the in the book, um, because it is maybe one of the few examples, not, not uh, in general. There are moder- more examples of cacicas who were officially recognized by Spanish authorities, but in, in the book, uh, she's one of the few. Um, her name is Teresa Choquehuanca, and she's a Peruvian cacica in the, in the era of the late colonial um, period, uh, also known as the era of the Andean rebellions. Uh, she was the descendant of uh, Inca and lords, and uh, she became a governor recognizing, re- she was recognized by Spanish officials right after the aftermath of the Tupac Amaro rebellion, which took place between 1780 and 1782. And um, like other loyalist caciques, male caciques, um, uh, Teresa Choquehuanca and, and other loyalist cacicas were confirmed their titles by um, Spanish officials and um, justified not only because of their long-established tradition of being part of a casical family, but also because of their individual actions supporting um, the, the royal um, the royal side of this, this massive, uh, massive indigenous rebellion. Um, we learn more about uh, Dona Teresa Choquehuanca through all the documentation that's available about her. She was um, an obraje uh, owner, and right? obraje was like a textile factory. She had uh, several places, actually, where Indigenous people worked under very rough conditions. Um, she was a businesswoman that used the, the the trade system of the of the Titicaca uh, Basin that connected um, uh, the Viceroyalty royalty Lima and main, main cities of um, of uh, what is now Peru with. The uh, mining center of Potosí, which was of utmost importance for uh, the, the the Spanish uh, wealth um, in the 17th century, but by the 18th century, it was a very uh, um, uh, prolific route of uh, of commerce. So she was part of this this route. Uh, she collaborated with the Bourbon reforms, and uh, so she. Uh, she was well off economically, and, um, and, and also because um, many of her brothers died in, in or after the Tupacamao Rebellion, she was the only heir that could inherit the cacique's title. While her father was still alive, he himself trained her in the task of being a uh, Cacica, and uh, so, by the time she requested her appointment from the Spanish officials, they already saw her huge CV, and, <laughs> and they were ready to grant her that um, that um, uh, that title and the office. But of course, this did not uh, this was not was not ideal, especially for the native peasantry, because there was it was cause for contention. Uh, the native peasantry. Uh, resented loyal uh, caciques and, and she was the target of much of that resentment. But uh, considering that uh, that she lived on a period of the general weakening of the Cacicaso, um her case, I think, nonetheless exemplifies the abilities of noble caciques to influence uh, colonial governance um, in the public realm.
0: Yeah, you know, and it also brings up for me a question about the idea of, were they in a somewhat of a tight spot being between the Spanish and the community, the indigenous community? Did that ever, did that ever put them in a, uh, in the hot seat, sort of like, you know,
2: kind of in the middle? Definitely. Yeah. Margarita, you want to say something?
1: Sure, sure. I, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Teresa, you know, Choquehuanca, but, um, uh, you know, in terms of independence, because this is the time period that, you know, that, that Sarah's talking about, the time period more or less that I'm working around. I mean, we, we know that, um, you know, that the, that the indigenous really, right, despite all of these rich histories on uh, the agency, the, uh, the subjectivity of natives, right, and their actions and so on, um, you know, all of this rich history, also tells us that uh, we know that the indigenous are, are resenting uh, the increasingly uh, strict oppressive rule, especially by the 18th century of, of, of criollos, of Spanish criollos under bourbon rule. Um, and so come this push for independence, right, this push for liberation, liberation and from the perspective of many uh, indigenous uh, liberation from, you know, from slavery and, and so on and so forth. There will be many, um, especially tribute paying natives, who will right view uh, this concept of freedom as liberation from right these these labor and economic obligations that have so oppressed their communities and the individual. But there will also be natives um, who will see this push for liberation as 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 directly challenging their positions of status uh, mm-hmm. status protected by right royal authority um, and tradition for now almost three centuries so there isn't you know when we when we try to understand right the story of independence which is really multiple stories as well quite complex um, there you know we can't um, we can't um, just talk about the the indigenous population as acting right in this uh, unified or homogenous fashion. Um, The same um politics of leadership politics of 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 status and so on that were very much at play and that be were challenged and in some cases broken or recreated at conquest three centuries earlier all of this is going to still be at play uh three centuries later um in this moment of independence and and yeah there are gonna be um, indigenous um, peoples of higher status who are really going to either ignore this independence movement or organize in favor of royalist authorities, right? In favor of maintaining Spanish rule um, and those, and then indigenous populations that will be against um, the continuation of Spanish rule. So it's, yeah, a complicated um, moment.
0: Yeah. So how about marriage patterns in the, in Spanish colonies, you know, do these casicas marry Spanish men? Uh, And how does that, how does that change the landscape in colonial America, Latin America?
2: (laughs) Did you want to start? (laughs) I can start um, just, just briefly. Well, just the, uh, a short answer would be, yes, they do. They, they do marry Spaniards for different reasons, but especially um, in the early years after conquest or contact, however you want to call it, yeah. <laughs> there were royal instructions um, that encouraged marriages with, especially with the native elites, right? So for- um, Like
0: alliance building, right? It had to alliance, be Alliance, exactly, yeah. exactly.
2: The, the notion was that if a Spaniard married a cacique or the daughter of a cacique, they would uh, assume the cacique's position uh, eventually, right? So some of these early marriages were undoubtedly forced, but some of them may have also been very advantageous for some of the caciques and their people. So, and I think gradually, because the colonial period is such a long period, um, uh, obviously not a homogenous period, gradually the the marriage alliances, the marriage choices become much more strategic in nature. Like we can see that by the 17th century, late 16th century, um, some caciques married Spaniards to reshape um, ethnicity, for example. Um, But some did not need to marry Spaniards to, Reshape ethnicity, for example, um, like some, some uh, caciques and caciques had more freedom to choose marriage uh, marriages that were more suitable to their needs. Like, for example, I don't know, choosing a spouses from uh, natural local traditions or... Just, just some of those examples, um, but um, I don't know. A marriage uh, to a Spaniard also had downsides, obviously. <laughs> and okay. I think some of those cases are exemplified well, again, in, in some of the chapters of the, of the book where uh, cases of spousal violence, like in the case of Margarita's chapter, in the case of Liliana Pérez and Renzo Norris um, uh, show the, the abuse of power that reach the Spanish courts. Um, so, and I think you know that there's also a variety of experiences here, but but definitely, I think marriage is something that um, can be explored in a very panoramic way as well.
1: You know, I'll, I'll also add that, um, and yes to everything Sara said, and yes is, yes, overwhelmingly yes, is, is the, the most direct and short response to your question of, yes, did indigenous women marry Spaniards? Yes, they did. They, they married them, they cohabitated with them, they had them as lovers, all of these various, right, relations with them. Um, but your question is also about race. You know, I think Sada was was uh, was also sort of um, talking about this a bit, but I'll add here that. you know, when it comes to being a cacica, especially one that wields uh, quite a bit of authority at the local level, maybe like Teresa Choquehuanca that has right, a much more official role, for example, um, or like the cacicas um, in uh, in the early colonial period, right? Who are who are creating these positions of authority on the basis of their lineages, right? Their pre-conquest lineages. For them, it was very important to be Indian, to be India still and be recognized as such. Um, and it was also going to be important for their lineage right for their daughters uh for their sons even and so in those cases um you know as Sarah said early on right we know our Spanish are marrying the the daughters of caciques right uh, the Tlatuani and in, in Nawa in the Nahua world in Mexico and um and their children uh, might be recognized as Indian might be recognized as Spanish might be recognized as mixed right as Mestizo um but but fast forward a few centuries, um, what we find on the record is that some of these casicas are Spanish on the record, uh, some are indigenous on the record. Um, but and so when it but when it came to right um, underscoring their casica status, given you know whatever situation was in front of them, um, it was important for them to underscore their indigeneity. Um, In some cases, we also find that cacicas and their positions of power were challenged by the members of their community on the basis of their race of their ethnic identity. Uh, In essence, those members of their community said no she's not indigenous anymore. Mm. She hasn't been. And, mm-hmm. and we find this in the late colonial period and we find this early on too as a result of those initial right, uh, marriages between Spaniards and casicas. So, so this question of marriage, yes, I mean, we really right, can talk about alliance building. We can talk about right, the development of colonial society. This is a gender question, but this is also very much about race, especially for casicas who want to maintain um, their, their, their status in this colonial world.
0: And I think that that's why one of the one of the reasons why this book really just is so important because it really is um, really successfully interrogates the race, sex, and class, the intersectionality of this of Latin American history, and you know the the issues uh, through marriage is is one just one way into that answer, one way into that understanding of uh, race, sex, and class in this, uh, in, in Spanish colonies. I think it's a, it's a really, um, it's, it's definitely one of the, one of the highlights of the book I really enjoyed. So religion is another one of the themes that is so important, uh, to, to look into here. So I'm wondering how do the Cacicas participate in Catholicism and indigenous religion? You know, can you guys speak to that a little bit? It's that
1: I saw you moving. <laughs> Did you want to start? Okay. Um, I'll say, just uh, to be clear about um, the volume, um, our book doesn't directly address this topic of religion. Um, there is already a rich literature on cacica nuns, for example. Um, and that literature, of course, was very much an important part of the inspiration behind this book. Um, that literature has done a fine job of underscoring how these nuns, right, that were in these convents were not women enclosed, right, in these, you know, behind these walls and shuttered away from society, that uh, that their placement or their, their voluntary placement or forced placement into these convents was very much, right, a reflection of the status of the families that they belonged to, very much a reflection of the strategy of their families in order to maintain their status, a reflection of the strategy of these women um, and their role in maintaining status and maintaining lineage. We know that they, were, uh, that they helped right, maintain certain networks both inside and outside of the convent. Um, we, I would say that uh, this volume, Casicas, really it runs parallel Um, to uh, a lot of that literature on cacica nuns. And, uh, you know, again, the aim of the book was to really try to add more historical complexity to our understanding of cacicas by looking at cacicas outside, right, uh, the convent walls. Um, Yeah, so so yes, very active in religion and not so directly um, in our book per se.
0: Yeah. And you know, what I was thinking about too, was this idea of the Cacica as somebody who is a protector of the indigenous culture, but also a bridge. Mm -hmm. And so I always think of religion in the Spanish colonies as being such an important part of that discussion, uh, you know, as more and more indigenous people uh, convert. um, Or proselytized, you know. So I that's why I guess I was thinking about that issue of um and and also the fact that women tend to be the real actors in the church. You know, they're the ones that tend to be the most deeply and and maybe on a daily basis involved in. Mass and ritual and things like that. So I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask that question about what you thought about it.
2: Go ahead, Sara, you wanted to. Yeah. To... No, sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to cut you. No. Um, but uh, but that's um, what you were were talking. I was just thinking. Yes. Uh, I mean, if, if a cacique was recognized um, as as an official leader, for example, one of the one of her duties was to Contribute to the conversion of the native peasantry, so so in that sense, um, casicas were very active members of cofradías or or confraternities, um, right? Um, and 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 if they did not take the veil, um, like the the casicas, well studied by by scholars um, in the past, they supported the construction of their parish parish churches, for example, or, and, and maintenance also, their parish churches, um, a lot of the religious artwork that is left in some of those churches have been um, uh, ordered, or they've been the patrons of, uh, of that. So in many cases, this, this patronage to religious um, organizations or religious activities also afforded them prestige. So I think religion is very important. It comes across, it comes out um, at different um, portions of the book, different chapters do mention religion uh, at some point, but not centrally, except precisely because we wanted to build this scholarship on cacique nuns that we are all, all familiar with already. Oh man, yeah. that's I great would I,
1: Could I just add one more thing um, along the lines of what Sara was saying? Thank you, Sada. Um, as you were saying. I was reminded of, of the contribution by Peter Vellella um, on the founding, right, sisters of uh, the convent in Querétaro. Um, his chapter is fascinating um, and really underscores um, the point that Sarah was making that, no, you know, while our volume is not about um, casicas uh, directly involved in religious practices, for example, and maybe um, covertly um, you know, secretly maintaining religious practices, right, at the community level, um, you know, hidden away from the church, um, and maybe protecting their community members, right, from inquisitorial um, investigations, we do find that as a result of their patronage, of their wealth, in the cases where there was wealth, um, they could actually sponsor, economically sponsor and religiously sponsor, um, the erection of a convent for indigenous women, right? And all that a convent for, for Indias Casicas would mean in this colonial period in terms of status, lineage, and so on. Um, and so that, that did happen. And that is explained um, at least in the chapter by, uh, uh, by Peter, Peter. Villela.
0: <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. I mean, I, I, uh, I teach women's history, I teach world history, and I find that this book is going to be useful to me for both these courses. And I was wondering how how you I- envision this uh, this book being helpful to students as well as to faculty colleagues.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. Um, we that's that's the main aim uh, of the book, uh, right? Uh, what we try have tried to do in the introduction is to provide a, a Uh, a historiography of of the caciques and caciques to then focus our attention to the women, uh, right? The the caciques. It provides then, um, I think an an introduction of of caciques as subjects, as we were saying, but um, on the broader field, um, this is a contribution to uh, native colonial, Elites indigenous history in general and particularly in Latin America. And, and I see that um, that some of the, the aspects of the books that, that we already touched about gender and race are crucial uh, subjects in today's classrooms. So hopefully the book can contribute to um, to learn more about that um, through the study of caciques, yes. Um,
1: Also, the organization of the book as an edited volume. um, We hope that um, for undergraduate classes, which is what I predominantly teach, I only teach, I should say, at Loyola Marymount, um, you know, this, the Cons- you know, its organization as an edited volume really allows professors, um, but students, to also to digest the ideas in this book uh, in a much more approachable way, right? Um, you know, it, for for a colonial class, for example, um, on the early period, maybe a chapter about um, the roles, uh, the different roles of indigenous peoples, of uh, those with status, um, men or women. Um, you know, uh, could be one of these chapters could be assigned for something like that to understand. And right, the changes in the late colonial period, um, another chapter could be pulled there um, for graduate students who are interested in, um, as Sarah was saying, indigenous studies, women's studies, race studies. Um, and, and maybe considering, right, um, a, a research question, um, this, this would be an area to consider, um, especially, right, again, if you're interested in questions about identity, different categories of identity um, for indigenous populations and really interested in uncovering a history that has been really for the most part hidden um, in, in other histories, but, but of course, other very rich histories, but for the most part, um, I'm hidden uh, from right, uh, much more mainstream academic and, and, of course, popular audience. Uh, so I think the, the volumes, um, themes, but also its structure really help, helps in um, in undergraduate classes and grad students looking for topics. And we hope some grad students might take up this topic and really sort of do yeah, something and run with it. With it. Mm-hmm.
0: I think the length of the chapters are, is also perfect. Uh, I think that that's really appropriate as, you know, especially when you're planning your your uh, undergraduate courses, you know, you don't, if you, you know, this to include a few of these sprinkled throughout your semester, a few of these chapters, it would be, it's just very blendable, very, it will be very easy to use. And I I, I think that students will also appreciate the, uh, the approachability. I think it's the length. I think it's, uh, it's going to be very useful uh, to a variety of different um, areas of history and um, yeah. and so I I, I definitely encourage mm-hmm. people out there to to look at it for uh, for use in their in their courses. I think it'll be very you'll find it to be a, a great addition to your courses.
2: And one what, just- thing I, I may add, um, so since we're talking about the contributions, is that um, we have tried in selecting the chapters of the of the book. We have tried to include scholars. Um, Latin American scholars that do not usually publish in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the the um, chapter on the on the Rio de la Plata, the, the, the caciques casicas, there, or the title on 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 uh, central region of Lima, are done by scholars that usually publish their work in um, Spanish. So, we have tried to include that variety of scholarship that is not, um, that, well. The, the main goal is to dialogue with, with scholars that uh, work outside of the US. So that's that could be another um, aspect of the book that is beneficial.
0: Oh, absolutely, It's an excellent point. I noticed that when I was reading the biographies at the end uh, of each of the contributors um, as well. So talk about some of the stories that you like the best in the book. Do you have a story that you, Particularly enjoy. Go ahead, Margarita, you start. <laughs> sure, I have. I really enjoyed like a lot students. of these. Stories. You're like my bad students in class. I have to pick on you. You know, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I came prepared. I came prepared, though. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to knock students
1: there. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I really enjoyed a lot of the stories here. Um, I loved. Um, I was impressed in reading uh, about the Casicas in the early post-conquest period in Mexico, who, who, were, who were understanding that they were systematically being excluded from positions of power um, and uh, and managed right, to, to hold on to their assets, to ensure right, their, their status and lineage um, in the post-conquest period by really sort of trying to figure out right, the Spanish system. Um, and, and here I'm referring to Brad Benton's chapter, I really was fascinated by Peter Villela's contribution on how, um, you know, in a way, right, he's he's challenging um, the, the historiography on women religious, right? Um, our understanding is that some of the first convents for indigenous women were established later in the colonial period um, in other parts of Mexico. And he's saying, actually, Look at this story here. The establishment of this convent in Querétaro, right, for Indigenous women, actually, um, it happens earlier than we thought, right, for the literature, and um, you know we just hadn't hadn't really noticed because uh, the the official sponsor of this convent is not um, the caciques, but instead a cacique, right. So again, the importance of under, of really sort of looking at the documentation and uncovering what was happening. Um, Overall, but but I would say that one of my most favorite, um, despite all my work with casicas in Mexico City, is actually is is Sara's uh, Teresa Choquehuanca. <laughs> and, and I think I, saw, I mentioned this to Sara. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by these casicas that um, that are are working upstream, if you will. At least that's how I imagine it. Um, she is she's your indigenous woman who doesn't get all the praise, right? And I think Sarah was saying this um, in another conversation. Um, She doesn't, you know, she's not part of the national conversation because she wasn't this woman who... uh, who, who defended right what we now refer to as um, as the homeland right because she was against independence and she actively organized and funded and fought right um, and i find women like that right who are who are not only holding on to their position but who are reflective of how these casicas are behaving right um, in ways that reflect their own self-interest that might reflect the interests of some of the members of their communities Uh, that that reflect the fact that they are well aware of how the Spanish system works for them. Um, Yes, the limitations and uh, and how it has maybe, you know, severely hurt members of their population, but also how um, there are opportunities, legal, economic, social opportunities within the system that they can um, uh, exploit to their own personal advantage, but also communal advantage. I'll stop there, but, uh, but really I, um, you know, Sarah and I really, you know, this goes back to something Sarah said earlier. We had a hard time, um, m- limiting, um, uh, the, the contributions to this volume because right. We, we had certain limitations placed on us by the press. Um, and, but we, we really had a ton of great stories. Um, and we hope that, um, people will, will pick up a copy and, and read some of these.
0: Well, time for volume two. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, how about you? What's your, uh, Sarah, what's your favorite?
2: Yes, as, well, as, as editor and co-editors, we have, we have had to read these chapters multiple times, (laughs) Um, even help with translation of of some of them. And uh, so we got to know these casicas very well. (laughs) They are, They are people we know, <laughs> but I want to say that personally, I, I really enjoy the stories of caciques that have left wills and testaments for us, uh, because I think those are such rich sources of information, ethno-historical information, and it imp- particular the chapter by, by Chantal and others that, mm-hmm. have, that mention the, the wills and testaments of this women uh, reveal how they bequeathed items that were so symbolically important for, and, and they represented uh, so many things like authority, like fertility um, or, 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 or other symbolic aspects of their cultures. So that really helped us to read that culture, in that specific cultural matrix, um, I really like that that aspect of of um, you know the the sources that we have for Casillas, but also the visual sources. Um, and and one of the reasons we selected the the book cover image, um, it's because that image is fascinating. It is it is housed at the. Um, at the Franz Mayer Museum in Mexico City. I haven't personally uh, seen the, the, the painting myself, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the that, that people in the audience may have and they would agree that that's such a rich uh, portrait, right? It's, it's a 1757 portrait of a young woman, uh, daughter of a uh, family. Her name mm-hmm. is right there in the in the book cover. Uh, Doña Sebastiana Inés Josefa de San Agustín. And uh, what we know about her is that uh, she was the daughter of a wealthy Casico family know, she, she had a painting. <laughs> Her status is signaled by the portrait itself and all the items that are there. Um, for example, the the abundant lace that she has, the jewels. Um, she's also wearing a huipil, which is the most exciting thing for me. Um, a peel is a loose-fitting overdress, and it's decorated with the iconic emblems of the bourbon rulers so that in and of itself um shows us as an example on how indigenous indigenous elites uh proudly display their distinct cultural patterns and privileges so many of the information um that that we probably would overlook (laughs) uh, but uh, do tell us uh, many many interesting stories about cacique come from this, this material culture, visual sources. Yeah, and
0: there's so many to pick from in this book that are terrific. And I really like the story about the peacemakers, one of the mm-hmm. uh, chapters on the Casica peacemakers. And the example, there are three or four examples in that chapter, but the example of Maria Jose Farroco who served as an important ambassador was one of my favorites. And on page uh, 258, Florencia Roulet concludes, quote, with age and a long experience of Spanish-Native relations, Maria Josefa's prestige depended no longer on her male relatives, but rather on her own diplomatic skills and her experience as a mediator with a voice to be heard end quote. Mm -hmm. So that really (laughs) stuck with me. Um, And the idea of these uh, casicas who could be mediators and peacemakers in society as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. So um, did you guys have any comment on that chapter at all? Did you have any thoughts on the casicas as uh, peacemakers?
2: We are yes. just so, so pleased to to have that contribution as part of the book because it's a region that is peripheral, right? Consider a peripheral region. We um usually not not many. Um I mean not 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 that not many, but uh it, it's a region that probably has been paid less attention, but uh but I think including that uh that chapter, those women eh, as part of this book, eh, has been really really important for us. Um so we're we're very happy that uh, that that piece is part of the book.
0: I wanted to kind of wrap up our discussion with peace. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of women as as important mediators of peace that made me made me happy to to think that we could think of women in history playing this role as peacemakers. Mm-hmm. I want to thank Dr. Margarita Ochoa, and Dr. Sara Vacuña-Gingrich for joining me on the show today and for a great discussion of this book, Casicas: Indigenous Women Leaders of Spanish America, 1492 to 1825, published by University of Oklahoma Press. I really hope you consider taking a look at this book. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading.